0: Welcome to Navigating Cancer Together. My name is Talaya Dindi. I'm a cancer thriver, cancer doula, independent patient advocate, and owner of On The Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. Gaps between the guidance, emotional support, and education that are needed, and what one receives can be huge. This podcast fills those gaps by sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who are thriving on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complementary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Hello everyone, this is Talia Dindi from ontheotherside.life and you're listening to Navigating Cancer Together, the show that has something for everyone facing cancer. Why? Because everyone is different with different needs, beliefs, and perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I encourage you to open your minds and your hearts. Today, our very special guest is Aaron O'Ryan Abbott-Haynes. Erin Orion is a childhood cancer survivor and mother to a childhood cancer survivor of a non-genetic cancer. With a master's of divinity and trained in many other healing modalities, Erin is a guide, a counselor, and a coach for people looking to create alignment and build resiliency through the exploration and healing of self and soul. Erin teaches therapeutic art forms, energetic hygiene, and practices that support sustainable living in a world in crisis. So needed. Erin also specializes in supporting families who are neurodiverse, gender diverse, disabled, and medically complex. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me here again. I'm so excited.
0: It is my pleasure, Erin. Just to note for the audience, Erin and I actually spoke a year ago, and we had such a very insightful conversation about childhood cancer. Erin shared so much about her own personal experience as well as that of her son. So I wanted to bring Erin back on to touch on some things that we really didn't get to dive into too much before, but then also see what she's up to today. Erin, before we get started, I just want to share a very concerning statistics that I just learned about from the National Cancer Institute. And that statistic says in the United States in 2023, an estimated 9,910 new cases of cancer will be diagnosed among children from birth to 14 years, and about 1,040 children are expected to die from the disease. Although cancer death rates for this age have declined by 70% from 1970 through 2020, cancer remains the leading cause of death from disease among children. Again, that's per the National Cancer Institute, and they released this statistic earlier this year, this um, research information earlier this year. Erin, let's start with that. Based on what you've experienced, there's so much more work to be done in this area of childhood cancer. From your perspective and your experience, what are some things that you believe can improve these numbers? What are some changes that can be made from your perspective?
1: Mm, What a good question. I think first and foremost, it's funding. We need more funding so that we can actually be developing treatments that are meant for children's bodies, meant for the way that children's cancer is treated in the world. I think that one of the really hard things that we don't talk about childhood cancer has been the leading cause of death, of disease in children for as long as I can remember now. It's not a new thing, that this is the leading cause. And yet we continue to find every single year we have only 4% of the national budget, whether that's four or five. There was a year where we had 5% um, <laughs> of the national budget, whether that's in Canada, because that's where I'm based, or in the states that goes towards funding new treatments and understanding how childhood cancer works. And when you to put that in perspective, we're talking about over 200 types of different cancers, getting 4% of the budget prostate cancer also receives 4% of the budget just for that one cancer alone. I think the biggest issue that we really look at in the disparity of care and the incredible high rate of terminal illness in childhood cancer is the fact that we don't have treatments that are created for children or how their cancers treat. So most treatments that are out there are off-book, off-label treatments. We are using adult cancer treatments at much higher doses than adults are approved for in children's bodies because the children's bodies, the children's cancers grow much more aggressively because their bodies are growing. So not only are we mainly using adult cancer treatments for kids but we're using them in ways that aren't approved for adult cancers in higher doses in children's bodies and we're hoping for the best and we're hoping to get the support we're hoping that the child will be able to survive the treatment now this may look very different if there was enough funding to start developing treatments that are actually meant to treat childhood cancer rather than thinking of childhood cancer as a miniature version of adult cancer, which it is not. It acts very differently because children are growing and developing. The cancers also look very different in the way that they function in the children's bodies. I think that is probably the most important part.
0: Thank you, Erin. And based on what you've shared, that sounds like a good reason why childhood cancer would be considered a chronic disease or chronic cancer. Are there other factors that lead you to believe that it's a chronic diagnosis?
1: Yeah, so I don't think that if you asked most medical professionals, I don't think they would agree with me that it's a chronic diagnosis. I think that they would say it's an acute illness, because most medical professionals are going to talk about the cancer being able to treat that and then the cancer going away. But the truth is that the cancer itself is such a long term, first of all, any chronic diagnosis only needs to be chronic for about three months to be, or illness needs to be present for about three months to be considered chronic. Leukemia treatment itself is over two years of almost daily treatments for children for most of that. And that makes it a chronic diagnosis. But then beyond that, there's a lifetime of late effects and monitoring, and that's both monitoring by the medical system and that's monitoring by the actual individual themselves and the impact on life. So we're looking at treatments because they are off-label treatments, because they are so extremely toxic that are impacting growing bodies in this way that are creating disabilities in the children, even when they are able to survive the disease. And then those long-term disabilities become a daily issue for those kids to constantly be interacting with and there is a lifetime of a follow up a lifetime of monitoring you are never done with monitoring after childhood cancer so that and dependent on the treatments that you were given that monitoring can be as simple as a once a year test blood test or something, but they can also need monitoring heart impacts, monitoring for um, hearing loss, vision loss, monitoring for organ damage, and all of those things build up and they continue to show up 30 and 40 and 50 years down the road, even when a child has been through treatment when they were five years old at 35 or 45 or 55, they might be diagnosed with something that we can directly link back to their treatment. And that is then going to be another health crisis. So in that way, no matter even if the child moves out of their treatment without immediate late effects, we're looking at a lifetime possibility of late effects. And so there's a way that becomes a chronic issue no matter what, because we're always tracking for it, we're always watching for it. And then we're dealing with whatever late effects are coming up. And no matter, and It's not uncommon for a child to end up with more than one late effect as the time goes on. So we might start with one, we might start with two, we might get off really, feel really lucky and not have any late effects immediately, but we might end up in our adult years having six or seven different late effects that we can track directly back to our childhood cancer treatment. So that's why I call it a chronic diagnosis and I consider it a chronic diagnosis because the treatment, the the specific chemotherapy or radiation or whatever, the ch- cancer treatment may change and may stop, but there's always going to be a continual treatment of the um, impact of what happened to you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much for explaining that. Erin, it's hard enough for adults dealing with latent effects from the treatment I can only imagine how tough it is for a child. They start out really young, and then as they get older, they mature, they're ready to date, they're ready to go to work. But these different latent side effects from the cancer treatment shows up in their life. And in our prior discussion, you touched on a lot of the things that you experienced. How tough was that for you to go throughout life up to a certain point where you were just being hit with these different uh, side effects.
1: I think I remember the day that I realized that I wasn't going to be free of child cancer. And that was the day that I was diagnosed with what's called avascular necrosis in my ankles. And it ended up being in ankles and hips and back and knees and shoulders. It, it was quite extensive, more extensive than they'd ever seen it, but very severe in my ankles. And I realized that there was no point where I was going to be free free of what had happened to me. There was no going back. And that's one of the hopes I think we have as kids is we're going to get through this. And I think we also, as parents, as adults, we hope we're going to get through this and we're going to go, we've heard this a lot in the last few years, we're going to go back to normal after it's over. And there really isn't a back to normal. There is a new normal that is created. But when we're dealing with childhood cancer issues, there's also this awareness that at any moment, that normal that we then develop, that new normal may need to change again to become another new normal if we laid, layer another late effect on top of that. So for me, for example, I really struggle. I was very angry for a long time and I, I was difficult. <laughs> it was a difficult person to deal with and to live with because I was having to wear leg braces as my ankle collapsed under me, I was having to wear an arm brace to try and I have limited mobility in one of my arms to try and gain some of that mobility back. I was going through surgeries, trying to fix things. And then I was also seeing surgeons around things like my ankles who were saying, there's just nothing we can do. You're just going to have to be in pain until the pain is so great that we can then stop it and we're going to limit your mobility even further at that point. So it felt like there was just no, there was almost no, no hope for it to feel like it could just be a release. In some ways, that childhood cancer experience gave me this idea that we can cure it, we can fix it, no matter what we do, we can get through it and it can be better. And the late effects really brought home to me, cure is not really fully what we think it is. And cure is a fallacy we like to tell ourselves a lot of the time because there's never a fully tied bow on that box of that experience, that box of that experience can be opened up at any point and have a monster jump out at you, right? One thing I think that is like a poignant example of what these late effects looked like in my own life was having conversations with the person who's now my husband before we were married saying, I need you to go into this understanding. I need you to know that I could become fully disabled at any point. I need you to understand that you're building your life with somebody who might develop a secondary cancer. You're just you're saying yes to having children with someone who might not be there to raise your children. Is that something that you are willing to do? Is that something that you actually want for your life? I'm not willing to put that on you if you are not fully understanding what the scope of what we're dealing with is. And so we had many months of deciding that and had conversations of me fully trusting that he was honest when he was saying yes. But it was it's a lot to ask of someone and it's a lot to then constantly every single decision we make in our life is with this understanding that we live in a little bit of a fragile state and that's not to say we ourselves are fragile, but that our the world that we create around us is a little bit fragile and might break at any point. We might need to remake it in a new form to incorporate one of these late effects or something else that might come up. And that's a hard thing to do when you're trying to also recover from early childhood trauma, like childhood cancer. Okay. It looks different as each stage goes along, right? So...
0: Yeah. Well, that had to be a tough conversation to have because you really don't know how people are going to respond. you like to think that, you know, but that could have went in any direction. I just want to applaud you for having that conversation, for being very honest and for being very um, unselfish, really unselfish and kudos to your husband too, for saying, yes, I can do this and actually doing it. So that's wonderful. The next thing I want to talk about, Erin, is you mentioned the lack of different kinds of treatment for childhood cancer. So do parents have any say in the treatment? How much? Anything like that? Any control over the situation?
1: That is such a good question. And it's I, and I thought about this, I've thought about this issue and this topic for a long time, and I think it's a really challenging one to really give the full scope of. I think the truth is that no, that's the hard truth is that no, parents don't have a lot of say over their children's uh, treatment. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, the first reason is because parents, if they say no to treatment, That's considered child endangerment. And so a medical team will go to their ethics board or to the social work system and say that this child is in danger of their life because they are, (laughs) they have cancer, and the parent is saying no to the treatment. Now, because we don't have alternative treatments that are proven successful, there are no ways to say no because I'm doing this alternative thing. We're just saying no. And, um, even if we're saying, "No, I'm doing this alternative thing, the medical system is going to come back and say that's not that's still child endangerment. We don't have the stats behind it. We don't have the science behind it. This is not considered a viable option." So there's that aspect of it that's very political and very complicated and very much never spoken about. So this is never a very this is never a conversation that anyone ever has with a parent until they're at the point of saying, the parent says no, goes through this horrifying process of deciding that no, I'm not going to say yes to this treatment, and then at that point, the medical staff is going to say, "Okay, well, if you say no, these are this is what the result is going to be." So very, this is not a this is not something where we're where someone says to us straight out of the bat, "You don't really have any options, unfortunately, and we will take you in front of the ethics board if you say no to this." It just happens when you're in the moment of it. I think the other complicated part is parents are dealing with so much in that moment of childhood diagnosis. And when the diagnosis happens, usually it often for kids, it's actually quite severe because they're children, because they're not able to track their own symptoms. We often get kids who have and because childhood cancer moves differently or grows differently, they're quite aggressive. And so cancer treatments, sometimes they want to be starting treatment for that cancer within hours of the diagnosis being confirmed. And so we're not given time to process this information. We're not given time to process this information. And instead, what happens is we're given this. When I was a parent, I was given this binder. I'm not even sure my mom was given a binder when I was diagnosed, but we're given this binder of here are the drugs that your child, are going, your child is going to get. And here are the impacts of these drugs. Now, these aren't even the piece of the paper within them. I went back and I looked when I had more capacity. They aren't the full story. They aren't giving the full impact of the late effects that are going to come down the line. But they are giving some understanding of this is the immediate impact. These are the immediate risks. We're looking at immediate issues that the kid is going to have to this drug. Those are in that binder. But consider your child is maybe dying so I can speak most, most knowledgeably from leukemia, because that's what me and my child both had. If your child is diagnosed with leukemia, we're given, there's at least six drugs that they're going to want to start pretty quickly. And they're given a binder with each drug has a list of side effects. You're not in a place where you can fully function and you can fully process that information. You don't really have any other options. And then there's this really hard other piece and i haven't spoken at length about this publicly yet because i think that it's very sensitive subject but i do think it's important to name there is a power dynamic between the doctor and the parent that is almost always present and I don't find this to be true with the newer generation of doctors, but in the older generation of doctors, there was a belief, and actually my uncle, who is a doctor, a retired doctor now, even said this to me once, there is a belief that the parent is the biggest problem when it comes to pediatric care. When my son was diagnosed, we had an oncologist who actually had treated me, who was still there, still treating patients, and he had a pretty major PTSD reaction to me being there. He was not, I think the other piece that we need to name really clearly, and we know this now because of COVID, medical professionals generally don't have enough support, emotional, mental support for the work that they do. And burnout rates are high and it's an incredible amount of stress. Now, if you consider you've been in the pediatric oncology world for 20 or 30 years, you're gonna have some pretty intensive trauma at that point. Now, so I'm not trying to blame him, but I do need to just speak very openly about what this was like as a parent and as a survivor who was treated by him previously. He had an emotional reaction to me that was very intense. And what that meant was that he would get angry whenever I would question or push back or name anything. And we even got to the point where he was yelling at me in the hallway at one point about how I was making up late effects and all sorts of things. I found out later he had luckily he retired quite quickly after this (laughs) but he was not in a good place at the time um but what that impact what happened to me as a parent and my ability to advocate for my child in the wake of this impact conversation when i was having these questions i was bringing questions forward about the treatment and i was saying at the time the questions were about what are you doing to mitigate these late effects? What are the new ways that we're working with these treatments to support late effects not showing up? How are we helping kids not have the experience that I've had? Given in our context, I'd just gone through remaking my ankle, being on bed rest for months, and I was one month into relearning to walk, which were all directly related to my childhood cancer treatment when my son was diagnosed. So I'm still standing in my orthopedic shoes in the hallway having this conversation with him. And he said to me, late effects aren't real. People make up these disabilities so that they can coast through life. And he said a bunch of other things. And then what happened was a terrible experience. It was, I'm laughing, but it was absolutely horrifying what this experience was like. And I left the conversation. I was completely distraught and... I went back and I was relaying some of this conversation to my uncle, who's a retired doctor. And he said, everybody knows that parents are the worst part of pediatric oncology. And it became really clear to me in that moment that, or pediatric care, sorry, not just pediatric oncology, but parents are the worst part of of treating kids. And it became very clear to me that what was happening is that doctors have a belief that parents are often something they have to get through in order to treat their patients more adequately right they have to get past the parent so that they can give the kid the proper treatment and there isn't a teamwork experience now I haven't had this I will say very clearly I haven't had this experience as much with the newer generation of doctors but this older generation of doctors absolutely has this belief system that Impacts their ability to deal with parents. And as a parent, when you hit that wall, when you hit that relationship, clear issue that that power dynamic, you become very careful of what you say. And you become very careful of how you push back against the treatment options, because you know that if you piss off a doctor too much, or maybe you have a fear, maybe it's just an unfounded fear. If you piss off a doctor too much, maybe you actually are going to impact the care that your child receives. So it becomes this very hard loop to navigate of how do I advocate for my child? How do I push back against a system that I don't necessarily always believe in, or that I have questions about, or that I sometimes need more information about, that I don't necessarily fully, I'm not completely in line with, without impacting the care that my child receives. And that's a really fine line to walk, especially when you're in as much trauma as someone is in, in that first you, throughout the whole thing, but especially in the first few weeks and the first even few hours when you have to make that decision about whether or not you're going to say yes. And they say there is quote unquote informed consent, but what does informed consent actually mean when you're looking at someone who's in that much emotional distress, unable to process that much information, and is once the forms are signed, you're signing up for treatment that is now going to take years? So it's a pretty It's a pretty complicated topic that I think that we don't really have real conversations about, because I do believe the medical staff is doing their absolute best in really hard situations. And for the most part, they know how overwhelmed the parents are when they first get that diagnosis. They know how horrible this experience is. They know how hard these decisions are, but we don't have options, we don't have alternatives. And there isn't there isn't a good way to really navigate the extraordinary amount of emotional um, distress that's happening for both parents and the medical staff when a conflict arises. That is not something that there's a lot of support around or a lot of knowledge about how to navigate well.
0: Thank you for going into that, Erin. You're right, it's not something that people talk about very openly. And it's really sad because it sounds as a parent, you almost have to walk on eggshells to make sure your child gets the care that they need. But then you're trying to make sure your child is not harmed by whatever care that they get. As a parent, you hate to see your child in this situation and going through that trauma. It's really a time where both parties need to come together and support each other. And the child, you said it well, it's like a power struggle, like a power dynamic, and that shouldn't be the case. The case should be focusing on what's best for the child.
1: Absolutely. And I think the hardest part is that both parties do believe that they are focusing on what's best for the child. I do want to say, I don't think that my experience necessarily negates anyone else's. Some people have really beautiful, really good relationships with their oncologists. Some people feel really supported and upheld and heard by them. And we did have an oncologist. We ended up having an oncologist who we were able to have a good relationship with and did feel like we could be in a more of a team dynamic with. But I think that in general, even if the individual oncologist is well set up to be in a team relationship with the parents, the system itself doesn't allow for a lot of that questioning or that pushback. So even if you have a good relationship with your oncologist, if you actually get to the point where you say, no, I don't want this treatment, you're now within the larger system. And that system itself is not well-equipped to deal with any pushback. So sometimes you get individuals who are not well-equipped to deal with pushback, like the experience of our original oncologist. Sometimes you get oncologists who can deal with those harder conversations and who are willing to like get into the weeds with you a little bit and, and have conversations. The c- oncologist we ended up having who ironically was a mentee of this first oncologist. So we were still feeling a little like we were walking on eggshells for a little while, but I am someone who is very much an advocate and I'm not gonna back down from every fight. So even when I'm walking on eggshells, I'm still pushing back a bit. And we went, ended up going to an, a naturopathic oncologist to see if there were things we could do to support our child's treatment at the same time as the conventional treatment. And the oncologist was willing to have a conversation with us about it. But ultimately, they're the ones who make the final decision. We're not the ones. So ultimately, they're the ones saying, no, you cannot have this naturopathic support because this is not, it's not proven. It's, and because, again, we get back to that question of research, we get to that question of lack of funding. If there is no science to fall back on, the medical system itself has to say, we stand by the, the science we know and we understand and we have science to prove it. Now. If there's no funding, we can't get new information, new science to support new treatments, to support alternatives. We can't get those things to actually move forward because we're stymied at the very basic level of not having that care. So there is this fancy dance that's always happening with the oncologist itself, but within the larger medical system, I think there's this issue of the rigidity of the system, And the lack of actual support that uphold everybody moving forward with that child as the center, right? When we don't have the funding, we don't have the care, the support and the science behind it, we're going to go to say our child is the most important, both the oncologist and the parent. We're going to believe that the child is the most important, but we're going to come at it from two different perspectives. And there's going to be friction there. It's a really hard thing to navigate. I've been in the system for 30 years, and I still had a hard time navigating it. So I'm imagining, and I know because I've supported parents in this situation, when you're brand new to the system, it's even harder to know how to push back, to when to push back, when to question, how to question. And even if you have an oncologist who's willing to do that with you or a team who's willing to do that with you, having the emotional resource to do that is something else entirely as well.
0: You made a great point, Erin. Thanks for pointing out the distinction of the doctor in the system. I think that's an excellent point because you're right. There can be doctors who are very flexible and they want to have that partnership, but then they're within this bigger system where they don't have as much control either. So great point. Another thing I want to ask about that, what if the child says, I don't want to do this? And let's just say the child is mature enough to know and say, I don't want this treatment. Then what does that look like?
1: The unfortunate thing is that looks like, I'm so sorry, you are not able to make this decision for yourself. And I think that's one of those really hard pieces where you look at how much autonomy a child actually has in the treatment, whether they're 13, 15, or whether they're five. And you have to really... I think there's a really heartbreaking aspect to this, which is that we want to empower children to be able to name their needs, to be able to name their wants, to be able to draw boundaries, to be able to say what's good and feel safe. And we want kids to grow up with being able to advocate for themselves. And in this kind of situation, even if a child advocates for themselves, we generally are going to have to say, I'm so sorry, and you're still going to have to do it. So we find ways that, at least for our family and for the families that I've worked with, we find ways that the child can advocate for things that can actually support them that we can say yes to, in order to help them learn those skills of how to advocate within a medical system. But, and, there isn't really the option to say no to the treatment. I I think I briefly mentioned this before in our other conversation, my son Really didn't like taking his chemo at one point, and we were in the hospital, and he was having a really hard time with it. He was four and a half, and we were getting to the point where we were a little desperate because a lot of these drugs have to happen on a very regimented schedule, and he was getting to the point where he was saying no to everything, and we were like, "How do you force feed a child? You how do you? Some of these have to be taken orally; they have to go in through the mouth. Some of them you can just put into an IV, but." Some of them are oral. And we were getting to the point where we were getting off schedule and that was getting dangerous. And we said, either you're going to have to take your meds or you're going to have to get a GI tube. We're going to have to get a tube that goes through your nose down into your stomach. And he was having such a hard time with his chemo that he decided that he would have the tube instead. And the nurses, when we told him, we said, I think we're going to go for the tube. And we're like, are you kidding? Like, why would you say yes to this? And we said, he's actually made the decision to say yes to the tube. I think this is the only way he's going to understand that he has to take his meds. We all knew as adults, we knew that this was going to be the way more uncomfortable, way harder thing. Like there was going to be trauma involved with getting that tube in, with keeping the tube. It was going to be awful. But our child had put his foot down and was not going to take his meds and it was becoming dangerous. So we decided to put the tube in and he had it for two days and it was absolutely awful. And he hated every second of it. And he asked for it out and he said, okay, I'll take the meds. Now that's a horrible, that's the unfortunate thing that we're getting to this point where, okay, we've, he's now learned that he can advocate to get a tube. He has learned that he can advocate to get it out, but he still doesn't actually have the choice to say no to the meds coming out of treatment. Then one of the questions becomes, How do you help a child process that experience and regain the ability to say no and honor it when you can so that kid does now build up that skill, knowing that you've had to take it away for as long as you did? I'm not sure if you can ever get fully back to where a child who hasn't gone through that experience is. I'm not sure you're ever going to get rid of that trauma of not having to say, but you can work on helping them regain their voice later on.
0: That is a really tough, but very insightful example. And I think it it speaks volumes to empowering your children at a young age to say, okay, I made this decision, but also here's what comes along with that decision and being able to learn the difference. This is what I wanted. This is what goes with it. But had he not done that, he would have never known. And you probably would have had a bigger battle ahead of you as well, as far as getting him to take the medications. Yeah,
1: absolutely. We were in the first month of three and a bit years of treatment, like it would have been, (laughs) it was necessary to have him really understand. And there was a lot of conversations we had throughout the course of his treatment of, I know you don't want this, and I'm so sorry. And you have to take it anyway. That's a really heartbreaking thing to have to do over and over and over again. And it's necessary. And it's unfortunate that it's necessary, but it's one of those hard pieces that we just can't get away from.
0: Erin, you mentioned trauma, of course, Mm -hmm. that is a very traumatic experience for everyone involved. There's also a lot of grief involved as well. And everyone experiences grief in different ways. What is that grief process that children and parents experience in a general sense? Or even if you just want to share how you and your family work through that trauma and grief?
1: Yeah, I think there are a lot of different ways to work through the trauma and grief. And I think that for our family, it might look a little different because I'm dealing with different layers of grief of my own childhood, grief of my own son's experience and then the impact on our life the impact that it had on my own family growing up in my relationships within that family and then trying to navigate and the grief of how it impacted our kids relationships and all the rest of it there's just so many layers I think one of the things that's important when we think about how kids and parents process grief differently from one another is to really name that like a child's A developmental stage is going to impact their ability to process grief. So, at each developmental stage, they're going to have a different experience of grief and fear. And, dependent on when they're diagnosed, they're going to move through their grief in different ways as they grow and as their ability to, their cognitive ability, their developmental abilities change. As those change, their ability to grieve what's happened to them and what the impacts are changes and looks different. So, you know, a kid who's a preschooler might feel like they're fighting a boogeyman, like an invisible boogeyman. And there might be some sort of like, the fear might be a bigger thing than the grief itself. Whereas a kid who's in elementary school might have a lot of grief of the way that they're being kept away from their friends and being held back and not being able to move forward. A teenager might have a lot of grief around How, what this means for who they are because they're at the identity forming stage of their development, right? So that's going to change how they are experiencing who they are and what this means for their life and what this means for them in the world. Whereas a parent is at a different stage entirely for their grief process because they are already, they've gone through those developmental stages. And so their grief looks a lot more cyclical, looks a lot more like we are continuing to revisit maybe new portions of this topic, maybe new issues that are coming up, but we're doing it in a way that is familiar. There are the seven stages of grief. There's the grief and rage and all of the Kubler's stages of grief. And then there's this aspect of sometimes we'll just be hit. I think of it more as an adult, like there are waves. It's the waves of grief that suddenly I'll be hit with this wave of grief over Maybe it'll come at the most unsuspecting times watching maybe my son run down the street and seeing how his legs and his ability to run has been impacted by the shortening of his Achilles tendon, which was directly connected to one of the chemo drugs he was given. That's going to hit me with a different level of grief on some days when I'm thinking back to how he was the fastest kid around and loved to be the fastest kid around before his treatment And then on some days, it's not going to be as prevalent or as present for me. So the waves of grief that I experience as a parent look different, as opposed to now my son is going through his own process of each time he enters a new developmental stage, his grief also transforms with that developmental stage. He started out in preschool age as a kind of this boogeyman sort of feeling and this The grief was like this invisible thing that was happening. And now he's moved into the stage of how cancer and illness and disability has changed his life and kept him separate from his peers. And what does that mean for his life and how does that impact him? And I expect that when he enters his teen years, we'll start start looking at what does this mean for my life and how does this impact who I am and what does this mean for how I understand myself And then he'll enter into adult stages of grief and there'll be different waves and and cyclical stages of grief. So I think that there are no perfect ways to deal with grief and no one way because kids at different stages need different things and parents at different stages often, at different points will need different things. But their grief, even if it comes in waves or that sometimes feel like tsunami waves and sometimes feel like, really low tides. Sometimes it can be really huge. Sometimes it can be less. It's more consistent and constant than a child's grief. And so I think really showing up with presence and understanding, I think if you do have a child who's going through this, understanding developmental stages and how they impact grief can be really helpful for supporting them because it can look like they're not grieving as they enter into a new stage. It can look like fury. It can look like rage it can look like a lot of different things and it can go from being scared of the thing under the bed or the invisible thing to suddenly being furious that we can't do all the things that everyone can do but really this is the same grief and it just looks different as the development changes so understanding that means that we can show up with our presence and support the child in that moment rather than Maybe not understanding where it's coming from and struggling to respond a little more. I'm not sure if I answered your question. <laughs> you,
0: you did, and it's a very complex question and a very complex thing because, like you said, everyone experiences it d- differently. So there really isn't a one size fits all. But you laid out a good blueprint for people out there to think about. So thank you for that.
1: Can I add one last quick thing? Absolutely. Which I think it's really- It's been really important for me, one of the most important things for me to work through my grief, and and community is important, talking to people is important, obviously having therapy is important, all of those things are important, but one of the most important things for me in working through my grief is to give myself an outlet where I can write what I'm going through, what I'm feeling, what I'm going through, and I can write it without any sort of, any sort of blocks. And that allows me to ride the wave of grief rather than get swallowed in it. Mm -hmm. So just in case that's helpful for anyone, try writing it out.
0: I journal. Yes, that helps very much. Great point. Erin, as we wind down here, I have two quick questions. One of them is what advice do you have for childhood cancer patients and AYA patients that can help them prepare for their future?
1: I think that's a great question. So, first really basic tip is keep a record of your treatments. Understand, we know what drugs you were given. Know potentially how often or what the frequency. Keep a record of your surgeries. Get used to doing, I, I know this can be triggering, so it's a hard thing to maybe create in your life, but maybe get used to the idea that you might need to be good at journaling your your symptoms. Get used to tracking your symptoms, health symptoms, so that when it gets to the point where you are saying, maybe there is a long-term thing going on, maybe there is a late effect happening here, you have some documentation to bring to your doctor and say, this is what I've experienced and these are the drugs I was given. What do you think? Can we make sense of this together? Those are basic things that I've learned through many years of not having done that and seeing what happens when I don't do that. I think the other thing that I would say is tell your story, share your story, do it as much as you can, as much as you feel good doing it. And don't feel scared of the fact that it's going to be hard for people to hear. Because people are going to have a hard time hearing this story. It doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. You haven't told the story wrong. You haven't Said something that's going to upset someone, you're simply talking about a truth that is really hard for a lot of people to hear. And it's not that they shouldn't hear it, it's just that it's hard for them to hear it. So keep t- sharing that story if it feels supportive to you. And remember that it's going to be okay if you go through stages of anger and grief and changing, that's going to keep shifting depending on what you're going through. It's never, you. this is not something you need to quote unquote get over and quote unquote go back to normal from. This is something that you're going to determine your new life dependent on this new circumstance. You're gonna create a new normal and you're gonna create the right new normal for you. And there are gonna be a lot of people in your life and so possibly they're gonna be people in your life that you're really close to. Maybe your family members, maybe your good friends that you had before your treatment. Who are going to tell you that they don't want to hear about it anymore that they want you to get over it that they want you to that you're getting stuck all sorts of things messages because for them they've had a different experience of it and they would like to move past it and not have to think about it but it's different for you and that's okay it gets to be different for you and that doesn't make it wrong You are not wrong for having a different experience. You are not wrong for needing time and space to share about that. I think it's really important that you understand that while your family and your community went through it with you, their experience looks different than yours. And that doesn't make your experience wrong, ever. Even if they have a different version of what happened to you, even if they have a different version of the events, because childhood cancer happens to a family, it happens to a community, but that doesn't mean that one person's version of that story is correct. That just means that we all experienced it from different angles.
0: Thank you, Erin, you have shared so much wonderful information today. If people out there would like to talk to you about your experience and get support, where can they find you?
1: You can find me at my website Orionsway.com, O R I O N S W A Y dot com. I'm happy to get on a call with you, to chat at any point, in any way I'm around. And this is something that I am passionate about supporting people with and passionate about supporting people through. So if I can help, please reach out.
0: Great. I will put that information in the listen notes. Tell the audience, Erin, quickly, what is a soul doula?
1: A soul doula? A soul doula is a support in helping you birth your most authentic soul into the world. So I am here to help support you emotionally, spiritually, in really calling your own true self forward in whatever way that feels right and good for you to do. So we do that through a whole variety of things. I have a whole kit of skills in my tool shed (laughs) or uh, I guess a bag that marvel Mary Poppins here and ways that we can do that but if you think about what a doula does in a birth situation they help support the birthing parent through the experience that's what I'm doing but I'm here doing it for you for your heart for your soul for your most authentic self
0: That's beautiful, Erin. Great work. I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, of course, always sharing a lot of great and insightful information. It's always a pleasure to talk with you.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful.
0: Appreciate that. Before we end today, I'd like to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. Please share, follow, or subscribe so that you can easily find Navigating Cancer Together again. You can also find Navigating Cancer Together on Amazon Music. That is it for this Wednesday. And until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care thanks for listening to this episode of navigating cancer together i hope you found it helpful please be sure to subscribe share and tell your friends and family about it for notes from the show and previous episodes visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section i'd love it if you join me for the next episode talk to you soon